conversation and I don't know for, for me that's a big part of it is getting to meet people like yourself who I've never met before but whose work I've always admired and getting to you know to hear a little bit more and be inspired by you know what you're thinking about and how you're going about making your work have you ever interviewed Bert Silberman we just did yes. yeah we haven't edited it but uh he's so articulate and, and Harvey Dinnerstein too yeah, it was extremely a, bright, uh, intelligent guys, who, and they're eighty-eight, and they're yeah, clear as can be. Yeah, still. and they've seen so much and been through so much. Like they've really seen what it was like before, went through it, and what it's like now. So they're they're kind of seeing the whole field. They've had a lot harder time than us. Yeah. I'm I've I'm. Okay, I'm 63. I mean, you guys like in your 40s. Yeah. So I'm you're like one generation older. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and those guys are a generation older than me. So um, uh, they've had it really rough. Yeah. It Each generation has it a little easier. A little better. Yeah. The, we're Luckily. teaching a bunch of, you know, 20-year-olds, and they're all, you know, haven't learned that you're supposed to hate Bouguereau or Messonnier <laughs> and that that painting is stupid and obvious, and you know, they just, they like it. Good. And you're like, oh my God, how, how did you get through, like, art history class and not know that you're not supposed to like that? You're supposed to vandalize that stuff in the past, <laughs> yeah. which they did. Well, and then now you go to the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris, which, uh, you know, maybe 20 years, 15 years ago I went there, and, you know, the statues are covered in graffiti, and now they're all cleaned up. They're beautiful. With some new level of respect. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I've said it before, but, you, you know, we we were, when you were doing a talk just be prior to us setting up and starting to record, you were talking about how important skill is um, and how the idea of like high tide raises all ships, the idea that, you know, students or somebody might, because I think the idea was yesterday was your opening here. We're at Gerald Peters Gallery on the Upper East Side for your solo show, mm -hmm. which is absolutely beautiful, and I think everybody mm -hmm. should come and see it. Mm -hmm. But there, some of the people here were saying there was all these people getting up to your paintings really close and taking photographs of them, and they were asking you if you were nervous about people copying you or anything, and you were saying, "Well, I'm. Well, I don't want to put words." Well, I'm honored <laughs> if, they, if they copy it actually, yeah. and and to have an effect, and if they can, uh, you know, reverse engineer it and uh, figure out how to replicate it. It's fine with me. And in fact, if they can uh, make improvements on it, that's all the better for art, isn't it? Yeah, because again, it's if they're getting better, hopefully that would reflect on us getting wanting to get better. To sort <laughs> they could show us how to get better. How to get a little better. Yeah. Too. Rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. That's all right. So is that how you started? Were you were there people who you were imitating? You know, when you were young. Yeah, I did, and uh, with not much information, te no technical information of how to, but I, gosh, who did I try to imitate? Maxfield Parish? Oh, yeah. No clue how to do. <laughs> Still. And, and some good, 
um, N.C. Wyeth, I love, um, and Andrew Wyeth, discovered him a little later, mm-hmm. and um, Western artists like Remington and Russell, that was what was around, and that was, in fact, that was, you know, kind of the early exposure for me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where did you grow up? In uh, Glenwood Springs, Colorado, mm-hmm. Western Colorado, and there was no museum anywhere near. So what were you? What were you doing? Like, what were you just kind of? Well, I did drawings, just drawings, and mostly drawings of airplanes, which I was I loved and, and still do love. Actually, I was fascinated with. Do you still? I didn't notice any airplanes in the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never really painted them, but uh, <laughs> that's how I started drawing. Oh yeah. Would you like make model airplanes and then draw lots them? Lots of lots of that, and go out to the airport and draw airplanes that were there. I remember going to the stores and looking at those model kits and looking at the, the illustrations on the cover and being fascinated by whether it's model airplanes or helicopters or, you know, battleships. But How was, was the, it drawn? It was the paintings on, you know, on the cover that I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's what it's going to look like when you build it. <laughs> I was fascinated by those. And I think some of those outside of, like, comic books and cartoons are... And we saw that with... And- comics and cartoons with no idea how it was done technically yeah well you talk about that that period where you know realism maybe in the art world wasn't wasn't being done and i think people who had the impulse to paint realistically wound up being illustrators for model ship boxes and you know which hopefully is changing seems to be it does seem to be and uh that um you know representational Artwork like we're doing is is being taken seriously, little by little. Not <laughs> you know no yeah um, rapid avalanche of it, but it's yeah. it seems to be gaining some credibility, and that's good. But we'd be doing it whether it has credibility or not, because it just means something to us. Yeah, and we'll be if it goes in style, fine. Goes back out of style, we'll still be doing it. Yeah. Did you think it was going to change? Did you care if it was going to change? I kind of did think it was going to change. Yeah. Um, um, and I've been that avalanche? You thought that avalanche <laughs> was going to happen? thought it was going to happen any day. <laughs> when you're young. <laughs> you know, like the apocalypse. For, yeah. Or uh, in Revelation. So it's, uh, um, it never came and never did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I kind of forgot down. about it. <laughs> And but luckily, have been uh, come along at a time when you you could sell realistic pictures and make a living and enough money to do your next painting. Yeah, basically, you buy time. Yeah. So it's, how did you become an like? How did uh, growing up in in rural Colorado like? How, how did you wind up an artist? Was that something that you saw other people doing? Was there, there was hardly any example around. There, there was a local cowboy artist who was pretty good. And it turns out he had studied in the East with Harvey Dunn. Oh, wow. Probably know who, and sure. he's a good artist. And uh, he did good things. He did things in our hometown, uh, mostly for meals and drinks. And, and uh, that was the only artist I was aware of in the world. And was he a model for you, or was that not something that you were... Was you know, I really never really got to know him. I just, I, But I did see his pieces, and they were pretty miraculous to me, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was... 
I, I drew a lot when I was a young kid, and then by the time I was a teenager, I got a little embarrassed about it, so I didn't really do anything like that. I did, you know, kid stuff, you know, blowing shit up. <laughs> <laughs> Teenage stuff. Potato gun. Working on cars. Yeah, and yeah. Things like yeah. that. And, um, and then I uh, kind of rediscovered it when I was about 21. But I did get a really good foundation when I was very young, like mm. a toddler. And uh, I, I think I learned a pretty darn good way of... Uh, you know, I mean, developed, you know, spatial temporal concepts, which uh, helps you judge proportion and sizes and things, and uh, things that are really vital to representational work. And I, I kind of got a good dose of that when I was really young. And I think it has kind of, um, you know, how it, your neurological pathways are developed at a particular early phase of your life. And uh, I think it... it proved to be a huge advantage for me when I got back into it when I was about 20, 21 or so. And then I got back into it as uh, uh, my life depended on it. Though. At 21, kind that's of when you started to... With it. You Partly I blew off high school and it was too late to be a doctor, engineer, attorney yeah. or anything like that because I screwed up too much. <laughs> but you could still be an artist. <laughs> what caused, what was the, that epiphany that made you all of a sudden become, I'm all in, in your 20s? That's a good, oh, I did take a drawing class in college. My first year of college was voc, voc tech training. I, I, I uh, uh, studied welding. Really? Welding and auto mechanics both. And I, I developed certain proficiency in that uh, uh, for a, that little time period that I was doing it. I mean, it really takes a minimum of 10 years to develop any sort of mastery. And I only maybe did it for one year. But it, for that amount of time, I got, you know, pretty competent and could have gone on, you know, had a career as a welder. And I actually liked it because yeah. it, it, you're making things with your hands that are incredibly durable. Yeah. And uh, and uh, to control the uh, molten puddle, you know, of a weld, yeah, is uh, takes a, a you know a lot of concentration and skill, and I really liked it actually, and and learned something about the working world too. And I did work in industry briefly, but uh, uh, and uh, that and you probably. And most artists have sampled other kinds of work. Sure. And, and uh, it gives you, it forms your, an idea for you of how hard everybody has to work to make a living. To do anything. Yeah. Well. There's no easy job in this world that I know of. It's all hard, all challenging, yeah. and, and it needs to be, really. If, if not, it'd be boring and, and unrewarding. And, and, but I don't think there's too many of those jobs anyway. They're all, I think... I think every job Difficult. has that potential, but it's what you do with it. It's what you make of it. And you could weld and really not be too thoughtful or careful about it. Or you could be or a welding do, artist. And, you could do your absolutely very best work. Yeah. Up to you. There'd be sloppy welders and there'd be very fine welders. Like, and when I see the, like the welds on an aluminum bicycle frame that are done just perfectly, I love seeing it. Do you ever really, do any recreational welding now? Just I've never welded since. Not not a thing. <laughs> I wouldn't mind it, but it, you know, it's involved, and you got to get a lot of equipment and retrain yeah. yourself. And I would have to practice a lot yeah. to re, you know, to come back up to the skill level I had when I was nineteen. But I, I didn't really. 
so far I haven't had the reason to put time into it, yeah. but I still <laughs> admire it. And I see good welders, I like it, and I see lousy ones, and it makes you puke. It's funny because I, I know people I know people who've actually built bicycles, and they've pointed that out to me. The quality of welding. Yeah, they're like, that's amazing. I'm like, well, it looks like a, you know, a nice frame, and they're like, no, 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 the welding in that is amazing. Like, it's... It means something. It means a lot. It they does. can see it right away. It and I'm wondering, I mean, like, I'm assuming it's a lot like how we can see like a fine brush stroke or somebody do something that you're like, that's not normal. That is, that is years and years and years of patient learning and relearning. That's right. It's, it's that that's idea. Right. Even when you have our, you know, the, the heroes of today, like the athletes and stuff, the Michael Jordans, and that wasn't, they're not just, I mean, there might be a, some sort of gift, but you, they don't tell you how many things hours of over and over and over training and training and training and training so they can come off like they're just naturally gifted that's precisely true really think that's true and it, it's uh, and i guess the reason it's worth mentioning is because it may not be widely understood by people it just seems like a natural gift yeah and it's not and see artwork is actually a learned behavior it's there's nothing natural about it. You may have some natural sense of proportion and understanding two dimensions and so forth, but that's about all. Or maybe you have, uh, uh, you know, enough natural coordination to control your hand movements, although that doesn't even have to be extraordinary. No, that can be trained over just some practice. Use a mall stick, yeah. what I do constantly, it's yeah. something to hold my hand steady. I, wouldn't be able to do this without a mall stick. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, I, I mean, I've admired your work for many, many years. and So have it, I. <laughs> I've always felt when I would look at your work that there is, there's so much thought involved, even in something like, a, you know, what would normally be an uninteresting object in a still life, that it seems like it's placed either you know, very deliberately, and, and I know it is because I'm looking at, you know, I'm, I'm deconstructing your paintings, but I'm looking at the composition and everything. But it there's an importance to this seemingly unimportant object. So when I look at your paintings, I always feel like there's just, there's there's so much thought, not only on the surface, but beneath it. Um, is there any way you can kind of even talk well, about that? First of all, I appreciate that compliment. Uh, um, you know, uh, maybe you're looking at that blue glass on the table and it doesn't look like much of anything, but you just find a way to uh, you extract some components of it, and maybe exaggerate certain things about it, and play down other things that aren't interesting, and you take something ordinary and make it beautiful. And, and, uh, and why is it beautiful? I couldn't even say why, but it, 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 could, it has a potential. Almost everything has a potential to be so. beautiful. I think so. If it's left in the, you know, in the hands of a competent artist or person, is that part of your process in in setting up still lives? Do you find that your um, uh, your still lives have pretty complicated uh, uh, compositions and lots of different elements, and sometimes you pull back from the still life setup and reveal kind of the setup of the setup and uh oh in the paintings yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm curious how... You is, almost show the wizard behind the curtain yeah, sometimes. <laughs> you do. You pull back the curtain. On I didn't it. even realize that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, well, you were talking in your gallery talk, you had one still life with uh, a number of elements, including a skull on a platform, and then right next to it, a mirror with some uh, translucent blue material that's creating this uh, kind of backfill light into the shadows. And it's it's pulling back the curtain on on your still life on how it was done. Do you start you know maybe just with a still? How does the process unfold for you? Uh, I think probably like in that case, that was meant to be part of the composition, mm-hmm. the compositional element, mm-hmm. that mirror and the easel that it's on and everything and the the chair. But uh, and, and oftentimes though. And on second thought, I look back at it, and I think maybe that unnecessarily cluttered it. Mm-hmm. And if I was doing it again, I would take it out. But I, um, I'm happy to kind of reveal the Rube Goldberg aspects. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. <laughs> only if it serves the composition. Right. Uh, and, uh, and a little, actually, I've been kind of... Um, uh, an, unfavorably predisposed toward narrative. Is and, there a narrative in, in there? Well, it becomes a narrative. Um, uh, um, just by what you said, telling the story of how the thing was made mm-hmm. on a uh, technical level. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, But uh, lately I've kind of reassessed that and uh, I'm more interested in narrative now than I used to be. But you said something about that specific... Well, the name of that painting, what was the name of that painting? I gotta look at it. It's I'll find it. Is it through my fingers? Um, What's What's interesting is uh, during your gallery talk, you were mentioning that you like to illuminate the shadows because it has a more contemporary look to it. Although I avoided that word. Okay. (laughs) Uh, um, But. that's a good point, but the but, idea. But I understood what, a more what modernist aesthetic. About, but but the, well, it's, it's the way it we see like, things a little bit more currently. That's right. And I thought that was uh-huh. actually because you know where when you get into the world of realism, you have a lot of people who are really trying to imitate the look of like the Caroscuro or or Caravaggio or something like that. Who are all our you know we all love that. But you were like, yeah, well, that's not how I see things. We have more windows. We have a lot more windows. <laughs> Houses. Are built differently now, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, although which I still love the chiaroscuro and uh, wouldn't rule out doing it in the future. You never know what you're going to want to do in the future. Yeah. And um, but this kind of got a hold of me for, uh, and it's really kept a grip for maybe the last fifteen years of my work. Your portraits uh, also, you you have that light in it. Uh, put the model in front of the mirror so it, it lights up the shadow side of the model. I really like that. Mm-hmm. But I also use other lights too because I feel like, I, on the other hand, although I like that, I've kind of beat it to death and need to look for some other other things that would be interesting. And really what, in a way, that's a superficial thing anyway because what matters really is the overall harmony and placement of elements and rhythms and intervals between things and uh, color harmonies and it can be accomplished whether you have illuminated shadows or dark shadows that that isn't really what is going to do it yeah but what's a lot of your paintings it i'm not saying that the setup does it but 
and I don't know if it's just your style, but they have this dreamlike quality that in a weird way almost make him seem, I don't I want, I know the sense, but it's almost more realistic in, in the way because it has this like dreamy thing that it kind of invites you in. Thank you, thank you. The, um, the recent pieces with the figures in landscape? Yeah, yeah, especially those. It kind of has this whole kind of dreamlike, but even some of your older still lifes that I remember seeing, they still have this like, feel like I'm walking in a dream, you know, kind of looking oh, at these thanks. paintings. Thanks. And I don't know if that's on purpose or is it just by just just happens to end, just the turn tr- out like that. I don't know how to really answer it because uh, I think it's just what comes out. Comes of out, and and which is what comes out of all artists. Uh, uh, is their true self. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and it's some of it's just a function of your attention span and, and your perception of time. And a real advantage, I think, for artists is to have little concept of the passage of time. Uh, and uh, so you don't know and you don't care how much time you've put into it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you have no concept of being patient because you have no concept of time at all <laughs> <laughs> and and uh that that can help art but everybody has a uh, a different kind of lock on the passage of time and it's not altogether advantageous either because you can fiddle relentlessly on something that's not even relevant and nobody else will notice it notice it you know, outside of yourself or possibly your you know your that, best friend who's it, in the studio all the time or something like that, that kind of thing and it, it also has unfortunately it carries over into the rest of your life of your oh that's so <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> so things that were an advantage for your work make you a pain in the ass so oh yeah yeah always <laughs> late for everything that's me uh, because of no concept of time and uh, uh so it's there's a price that goes with it <laughs> And every strength is accompanied by a weakness, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think the idea of time, too, is, 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 I don't know if it's important to express it, but it's such a factor in, all, in what we do. And people who don't paint and, and doing what, in this style don't realize that you're working on that for like months and months and months, maybe. You know, some think it just, oh, it just appears. And you have an attention span that that uh, help carries you through it, but it doesn't mean you'd be patient with everything. No, you can be incredibly impatient on other things. Yeah. The things that don't hold your interest, <laughs> for example, like photography. For me, I I don't have the patience for it, <laughs> and that's as ironic as can be because that takes one sixtieth of a second. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've like already turned away before you already bored. <laughs> You know, another thing about your paintings that stood out to me, I've seen them in reproductions, and uh, seeing them in person is the, the texture and the paint handling, and there's so much care, and, and it seems like there's so much joy for you in just playing with paint, playing with textures, and building it up, and even, you know, finding the right tool to make the right shape out of the, the paint. I mean, I was blown away with how textured uh, the, the paintings were, particularly the, the big figurative piece of the woman where there's mm-hmm. kind of scumbling behind her. Her skin is very smooth and her hair gets wiry and the grass is really built up. Uh, how, how do, I mean, how does that develop for you? And, how, you know, 
how much time is, is layering and, and how, how are you finding tools to make? Well, there's a lot of trial and error involved and uh, stuff that um, I hadn't tried before and want to try now and mm -hmm. things that I even dismissed as ridiculous or irrelevant before now matters to me. And uh, But that's the good thing about art is it's inexhaustible what yeah. you could be doing. You never run out of things to try. And and even though they're incremental steps away from what you've already done, they usually don't make big leaps. They're right. just little tiny steps from one you know, phase to the next. And so lately I've been more interested in... Uh, in using textures and kind of choppy paint and disintegrating areas and then realized areas and oddly it who knows what it comes from one I was kind of headed down that way when uh, a, a, an exhibition of Vincent van Gogh came to Denver and uh, uh, we're you know we have kind of a museum community and we're since there's only one museum well no there's several but um, uh, uh, there, it, it's a relatively uh, small amount compared to what's available in a metropolitan area like New York City. And uh, so it means a lot to us when a show like that comes. And uh, for most of my life, I wouldn't go across the street to see a Van Gogh <laughs> But then I oddly got interested in his paint application and uh, where, it, where it could... You know, and it could just extract one component of it for uh, for where it might serve what I was doing. Yeah. And uh, I never thought I would care about <laughs> him. But, and then I began to see that he, there was a really genuine passion about yeah, uh, about some, his work. And, there was some yeah. thought in it, yeah. And heartache and, and truth and vision and... Uh, uh, his own vision, it wouldn't be the one I'd pursue, but it, 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 I could kind of see why... Well, he reacted. He also reacted against the salon, and uh, he, he learned a lot from it. He learned how to draw from it, actually. He would and do bard plates. He was like, right, that's right. Yeah, some that's of those, right. He would talk about being so um, dissatisfied that he would like, I need to go get some more bard plates, and just like, I remember reading. I was like, wow, totally changed my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like he was really thoughtful, a disciplined student. And those letters to his brother were pretty. And so beautifully written. A beautiful writer. And uh, articulate and spoke several languages. Sometimes I was looking at some of his paintings recently and just having the thought that maybe uh, he had this kind of, his brother supported him and he kind of seemed to resent it a little bit. And always asking it. for more paint. <laughs> and I just imagined him like squeezing paint out of the tubes right onto the canvas to just kind of forced his brother to send more paint <laughs> just because that was his only lifeline. He was so isolated. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Could have been. But, um, so you I, saw something in, in uh, a little bit. It, it, well, not you kind of take what's around you and, and that influences what you might be doing on your own work. In that sense, you were looking at a Van Gogh and being like, oh, that's pretty cool. I might want to... Which I never thought I'd do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is the trial and error that you mentioned... For you know, for exploring different textures or tools to make textures, is that happening on the canvas or on or the, panel? Pretty much on the on the. So you'll try on it, the work it in down progress. And, on the work in progress. So, yeah. But it I could see it would make sense to try out things on a separate panel just to see if this texture. What's going to happen when you say build up this thick paint, and then 
glaze it and then scumble it and you know, a series of steps that it has to dry between each step and yeah. so forth. Um, in that particular painting with, with, uh, called Wake from Dream, uh, uh, the, that field of grass back there, I did kind of mess with texture in a way that I'm not, when I was doing it, I wasn't sure if I really liked it. And uh, if this is, because there's, a, a part of it doesn't really make sense, to tell you the truth. The uh, grass? Yeah, because the grass has gone sideways instead of up, <laughs> yeah, and things right. like that. And, uh, but it didn't want every stroke going the same direction. Yeah. Well, it's also how the light catches those ridges of paint. And, you know, in her hair, I thought there's a beautiful effect there where the hair has this incredibly tactile kind of solid sense uh, where the hair is a bigger mass. And then as the hair kind of trails off and is blowing, it becomes really thin, translucent uh, paint. And there's such a, a, a range between the two to express such different facets of hair and the way that the light catches oh, those. Thanks, thanks. I appreciate you noticed that. And uh, actually, um, fittingly enough, uh, to make that hair, I used a comb. <laughs> in, really? In the wet paint. Where did that come from? Well, from the art supply store. They have new stuff showing up that I never heard of. <laughs> I didn't know you'd even use it for painting, and I, I wouldn't use it, uh, but because uh, it, oh, it looks gimmicky mm-hmm. and goofy looking, and at the same time, who knows what hidden potential there is in those things? Yeah. And they have these palette knives that are kind of like a little rake. Oh yeah, or yeah, comb. Yeah, yeah. And I, I brought one home, and it just sat there for a year or two, and then. Uh, and I was working on, uh, I think, uh, the hair of a model and wasn't getting anywhere and everything else I was trying, you know, it was just like, it wasn't working for me. And then, so out of desperation, you'd say, you see this thing laying on, gathering dust on your, your pallet table and grab it and start <laughs> <laughs> scraping around with it. And all of a sudden, hey. That's kind of cool. Yeah. That's kind of cool. <laughs> uh, and it's then the you, illusion of what I want, because it's all an illusion anyway. Of course, the whole thing is. Just and so it's essentially using texture to enhance the illusion that you've already been building with values and yeah. colors and edges and temperature changes and everything like that. So just add one more level with texture, and and it's kind of an optical mixing. Yeah. And especially that grass in the background, it's, it's, it's optical mixing, which is kind of what Impressionist painting was all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, So many people are going to run to the art store right now and look for those rigs <laughs> and do all that. Well, that'd be good. That'd be good. And they make, they make steel ones, rubber ones. <laughs> yeah, they make, yeah, yeah. make them like rakes or combs and all kinds of things. <laughs> we had uh, Joseph McGurl on the podcast. He's a, a great sure, landscape sure painter. Sure He's also exploring texture uh, in his recent work. And he mentioned some tool that he found, uh, I think, in Martha Stewart, Stewart home. <laughs> it was to create uh, like some sort of a pattern on a wall for you know painting a house and he was using it to build up texture and get this kind of varied random kind of uh, actually that's a good it's perfectly good idea and it's a good use of those tools yeah I, I, I saw a tool at a hardware store the other not too long ago I'm probably going to go back and get it because first I look at it with suspicion and, <laughs> and then you think about it for... A, what kind of a fool would use a tool like that and then two days later like, I this, need that This tool. fool, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't trust that tool. Well, this was a thing for making wood grain. 
Oh yeah, ah. for like um, a trompe like a trompe l'oeil faux faux something, stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and but you could you could put it into thick wet paint and make some real texture, and make <laughs> some wood grain with it, and then you do a combination of glazing and scumbling and sanding and who knows what else you might do to it, and uh, may come up with something that's kind of cool. That's so, <laughs> and I can see how you'd use it. Say, now it would be it, the tool is probably made for. Um, you know, just like making wood grain on a flat wall, yeah, say. But yeah. say you wanted the illusion of it, uh, of a thing that's receding in linear perspective. Yeah. So you just put uh, less pressure on the far away parts yeah. and squeeze it down. If it's resilient, oh, when it fans resilient, out, it'll fan out. Fan out so that it gets larger as it gets closer and make it work with your so it just, lines of perspective. Yeah, you just follow aerial, not only aerial, but like the actual physical lines of perspective yeah, and right, it would be right. fine. Yeah, now, absolutely. would you develop a... I'm all four gimmicks if you can make, <laughs> if you can make them do, uh, do something. Yeah. Make them work. And then everybody's going to be like, how, how did he or she do that? And you the magic a trick. You keep it a secret. And that's, there are no magic tricks. There isn't. And uh, that's why, in fact... If if there anything, they would just lead people astray, thinking thinking that some it, silly that's the way to paint or yeah some tool is going to make all the use? difference. Yeah, it's like I don't know. It's like <laughs> tell you everything, but it isn't going to make any difference. <laughs> <laughs> do paintings usually go smoothly for you, or do you ever struggle? Do you struggle a lot? Yeah. Uh, well, the the figure standing, uh, say the female figure with the the white dress uh, it struggled in several areas, st- several, on several levels. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the technical level was, uh, like you can see where I, I used two cores of sandpaper to sand out an eye and reposition it. Mm. Uh, if, if I would have just taken the time to go get some finer sandpaper, those deep scratches wouldn't be showing <laughs> up. But, but you just had what you had in the studio and you yeah, had to sand it then. It wasn't going to wait. Right. But it's, that is not an example of good craftsmanship, I have to say. But thankfully, it doesn't really jump out, and you, you have to really search for those. But, uh, but I kind of learned a little bit, too. Just next time, get some finer sandpaper. <laughs> just have that, just in case. <laughs> but I repainted that head like three or four times. But here's an, another level of struggle was that I thought, what in that world did I paint uh, her standing in a kind of a nightgown outdoors for I, I had asked her to show up with something white, and um, it turned out to be a nightgown, which is something I didn't think I'd be interested in painting. But there it was, and uh, uh, I did paint it. And uh, then it kind of took the narrative in an entirely different direction. Yeah. So then yeah. the idea of waking from a dream. So, so if the painting doesn't yeah. make sense, at least to kind of alter the title so it starts <laughs> explain sense. Yeah, no, it'll make total sense as soon as you title it a certain way. It'll be like, yep, that makes total sense. But that's funny that you say that because I looked at that painting and again, it goes back to that dreamlike quality, that state. Thanks. And I, the painting would not be the painting it is without, I think, that idea of that she's in a nightgown and she is outside. And you don't know if it's dusk or dawn. You know, not mm-hmm. quite. It kind of has this ambiguous... I mean, it's either dusk or dawn, you know. But I think that's also what makes it so incredibly interesting, mm-hmm. is that it is in this this kind of, you know, this 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 
place, you know, that I'm not familiar with. It's rather inviting, too. It's not like, oh, stay away. It's like, come in. It's, it's kind of fun in here, you know. I'm glad it seems like dusk or dawn. It was actually broad daylight when I was doing the work. How did you adjust it? You just do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm not really sure, but it... Uh, you know what? The, the, the real reason for that is so prosaic, it'd be disappointing to... So, um, maybe it shouldn't disclose. Okay. <laughs> well, let me ask no, you this. No, I would. I'm glad to disclose. It, it, it had to do with the composition. I, I put composition at the forefront mm -hmm. so that uh, everything in the landscape needed to be kind of one value. Mm -hmm. And the sky needed to be one distinct value. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, because I... I uh, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's just what I, I, I kind of put as a priority in a piece. So it was really compressing the value range of the landscape, and thus it ended up look like, looking like silhouetted like dusk or dawn. But what ends up happening is because you compressed it, she became so incredibly three-dimensional because she had a variety of value on her. So for it popped her so far forward okay. that it, it, it does get this kind of weird illusion of like three dimensions well that's what i like is a, a, a strong illusion of three dimensions mm -hmm. and and it's using every you know desperate trick in the book to <laughs> the kitchen uh, sink <laughs> all in whatever <laughs> whatever it takes and often i feel like it, as when i'm coming to you know trying to make a painting really work i'm, I'm, I'm desperate as hell because <laughs> i'll do anything uh, you know <laughs> No, sell your soul, whatever. <laughs> it's like it back against the wall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that the process for you? Is it always kind of it? You just it kind of. Uh, it sounds like it. It just evolves as it as it goes along. Like there isn't necessarily a step by step plan that you're following. Or there's a bit of both. There is. There are certain step by step things. Like I, I want. Like in that particular painting, I. I yeah, there is. There's a combination of things that they're completely unpredicted to me, and then other things that I, I do plan kind of methodically, um, such as the fact that on that, I, would, I put all my effort into the landscape first before I really did any work on the figure. I just had it kind of blocked in where I wanted it. Mm -hmm. but the work, figure blocked in or the landscape? The figure blocked in, and then the landscape based, kind of based around it okay. and adjusted optimum composition to set off the figure yeah but the um um oh yeah that was and then working back to front from back to front is what is i went completely blank there for a second um uh, welcome to my life um <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, back to front is kind of a logical thing for me because that's it, it really is the way we see things anyway we see just you know Close things are in front of more distant things, and it's layering, and uh, and it's in in painting, it's a way of kind of methodically layering space, and the and the, the things behind in the distance have, you know, generally less contrast yeah. uh, or contrast within themselves, and I use glazing and scumbling and every and blending and everything you can to make the stuff go back, and then have it pushed pretty far back before I even start what's in front of it. And I, I, I have been doing that for a long time. And, and, and the just practical advantage of it is that uh, you don't have to carefully 
uh, work around something that's finished. Right. Mm. And try to preserve it without messing it up. And but uh, more importantly, is that um, it it has set the stage of the light and values that you're going to use in the, the so sky. You're, you're creating the world, and then you can put the figure or that's whatever right. in that world. That's about. That's really right. Huh. And uh, that um, it sets the the it sets up the colors that are going to work. And, and it completely, the sky is the biggest thing in the picture. Yeah. Even if you're only showing a sliver of it, it's going to be the most influential part of you the You do know colorless. that dome is above, off the picture plane. Right. It's still illuminating. This, right. In this case, a figure. That's right. That's interesting. That makes yeah. total sense. I do a lot of landscape painting, and that's the, you know, when I'm out doing plein air sketching, I, the sky is the first thing, because it's also going to change, and... If I lock into the sky as it is now, I can use that, you know, that color to uh, influence all of the elements that, you know, come forward, uh, kind of pulling from the light that I've established in the sky, even if it's slightly different by the time I get to those, those closer elements. And it's a completely logical way to do it. Yeah. And, and you know, to make representational pictures... It, it is kind of methodical. It isn't like um, waving your arms and jumping up and down and hoping something happens. You've got you to think about it a little bit and have a, there's a logical sequence. Yeah. Well, it sounds and like there's both for you. There is some of both. And, and uh, 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 I mean, you also don't want to repress your emotions either. Yeah. And, but, not even, but not be too self-conscious of them. At the same time, you know what? There's a a movie that um, it was made about 25, 30 years ago about Caravaggio, and it's a it's a, it's a cool film, a fictionalized version of, of with Caravaggio, and it shows him always uh, on the run from well, the, always on the run from the authorities. <laughs> that that because but it and, but the, it tries to stage him doing the paintings. It'll show all the models there at once. Labor, yeah, yeah, yeah. laboring like to hold the pose it doesn't work doesn't right. really happen that way but, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, uh, but even if it did so you had the budget to have all those models there at the same time for weeks and months <laughs> and, um, uh, it shows him a painting uh, you know going about it with these grand gestures as if he were <laughs> right. Pollock or the yeah, Cooney yeah. they get it so wrong and throwing movies. his body oh. into <laughs> this vigorous kind of and it, uh, if you ever painted you'd know it but there probably wasn't done like that and he was a physically him. aggressive kind of painter I yeah. would think but yeah. still even his paintings are fairly refined I mean it's not they are they're, they're controlled very yeah. careful yeah <laughs> and it is it's a combination though of of, of careful control and emotional expression and it takes a long time to develop that as an artist do you think it's possible to make very expressive art while still holding on to like a tradition of skilled realism yeah exactly that's that's really just what i mean yeah um, it seems like out there people are like oh you can't have both I'm like, why can't you have both? You of course can be you can. Incredibly, in this case, we'll call it realistic realism or something, mm -hmm. whatever the word is. But mm -hmm. you can be that and be incredibly expressive. I if anything, I would so. say you could be more expressive. That's right. That's it's, right. It's you can you can get to the 
a universal idea that everybody would share because you know what the image is, let's say, and you know what the feeling is, I would think. Because, you know, because conversely, uh, uh, you can see someone, you know, expressively emoting and all over the place. And, <laughs> all over uh, themselves. <laughs> with the, uh, the accumulated angst of centuries in one man, <laughs> the legend, <laughs> and, and with unique problems that no one else has ever experienced. <laughs> Nobody's felt pain like this. Yeah, like me. Yeah, right. And, and uh, it's delusional, I think. And and uh, we kind of realize. But but uh, to just emote without craft isn't really convincing. The emotion is vitally important to make interesting artworks and literature and music and so forth. But but without craft, it just doesn't carry. And and conversely. Yeah. And, and, and meaning like something that is so craft based that it has it's void of emotion. Yeah, like like um, and and we were talking earlier about the problems of uh, and, uh, and then and the unfavorable influence of photography mm-hmm. is that it can uh, on painting is that it can just end up with something so mechanical and devoid of emotion that uh, uh, what is the point? You might as well just have the photograph yeah. instead of wasting all that labor. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said you used to be really anti-photography mm-hmm. and then you, you changed. What, what, uh, what was the catalyst? Well, the fact that, um, that you could view uh, photographs on a digital screen, on a computer screen, mm-hmm. and adjust contrast and, and compensate for the limitations of, of a camera and uh, actually make something that's pretty darn convincing. Yeah. And That's fairly recent. Then. It is recent. The back, the backlit, mm-hmm. back, backlit additive uh, uh, light, kind of, as opposed to pigment. You know, the idea of like a pigment, of a printed photo, a printed photograph. Yeah. yeah. To me, I mean, I'm, I've also worked from printed photos. Yeah. But uh, uh, I just think the backlit is really Changes. lifelike yeah. and and helpful and. Uh, it certainly also has its limits too, sure. but it's it's a good informa- start of information. And and uh, but for years you weren't using it. You were working directly from life, and I think the skill that you were able to um, gather from the many, many, many years of you just painting from life, you can look at a computer screen or a photograph mm-hmm. and be able to adjust it. Not even not even adjust it, paint it still through the the filter of your brain. That's right. Um, that is why I painted still lifes almost entirely for, um, I don't know, how many years? Yeah. 20, 30 years or so? They're cheap models. They're cheap and models. They don't <laughs> That's right. Much. That's <laughs> right. Perishable stuff does. Yeah. So like a flower, you're going to want to uh, get started on that early in the morning, and, and that may be the only thing you do all day all is day. that flower, because it won't look the same tomorrow. Yeah, even by the end of the day, That's mean, right. depending on how cold you keep your studio. That's right. A lot of them, you, they're changing right before your eyes. Yeah. So you prop them up with toothpicks and rubber bands <laughs> and <laughs> wires and, and uh, do everything you can. Um, it's funny a that lot you, of... you sometimes put those in. Yeah. Where I would that's not, just, I would like, you know, take them all out and then I would look at your painting and he put them and I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> he oh. actually painted like, oh. again, the man behind the curtain. I was like, oh. ah, jealous. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm, uh, I'm sure lots of artists have done it and I wouldn't be the 
claim to be the first at anything. Yeah. And um, in fact, that, that takes a load off your shoulders if you uh, don't worry about being the first of anything. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, because it's sort of not relevant anyway. And I, that's why I think that creativity is a little, the concept of creativity is a bit of an illusion. Mm-hmm. It's that we're just building on things that have, that have come before. If anything, maybe the Paleolithic artists were uh, really creative because they invented drawing. Yeah. So that's something. And the rest of us throughout history are just kind of doing more of the same and, <laughs> and recombining, you know, combining disparate elements that uh, maybe weren't combined before, but they probably have been. We just don't know it. Or we do know it. And sometimes... It's really hard to uh, to know if you have an original idea. It may be original. You may have dreamed it, or you may have seen it a hundred times and thought you made it up. And, and and I have sympathy for say musicians who get sued for copyright on on say a melody. Yeah, it's hard. Some a really experienced musician. It could be hard for him to remember. Did I hear that somewhere? Or did yeah. it just come to me in a dream? I think it's called like it's either parallel thinking. Or because I know comedians, that happens to comedians too. When they like tell the same joke, or something. they might say tell the same joke, and it could be that they just saw something and it came up with the same idea. It's not that rare, or they heard something once and they didn't realize it. I think there's a difference between stealing, and that means any idea, whether it's mm-hmm. a painting and all that. And just being influenced or not even knowing that you're influenced by stuff. Well, you kind of half hear something and then and all of a sudden something yeah. pops in your head and you're like, I'm not going to waste this. But also, I mean, almost every idea that I have painting, I mean, I look at so many paintings that it, you know, it comes, I, I saw something. It might not relate in any direct way to what I'm doing, but it did inspire some idea. Oh my gosh, I could do that. Or I could do, you know, I could think about applying that to you know, you read a book, you watch a tennis match, and you mm-hmm. see somebody doing something amazing, and you just it's immediately relate it to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really true, and it, it turns into a big mix of stuff in your right. brain you don't haven't really logged where any of it came from. <laughs> <laughs> and so we don't need to be concerned with originality. It's just, if it's original, fine. If it's not, fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, we just do our best work, and and uh, we don't have to carry the burden of all of worrying about all that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's it, hard it, to avoid being original. I mean, you're an original. Like, there has never been another Daniel Sprick, as as far as we know. And so, you you can't avoid being yourself. And you're like, even if you decided to make your life about just copying every Vermeer that was painted and spending a year on each one. That would be original, and that nobody's ever done, you know. Because they weren't stupid enough <laughs> to try. Yeah. But, well, in fact, a lot of origi- original ideas that we see, it could be that the original, because uh, nobody else did it because it wasn't such a good idea. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, that, and novelty is a big driving force in contemporary art, I'm afraid. And because nobody else has done this yet that we know of, like putting poop in a package or whatever it is. Seems like there's a whole lot of... Do that every uh, day walking my dog. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like there's a whole lot of effort and, I don't know, maybe wasted time in thinking and, like, what's the next big thing? It's a waste of time, right? 
But it seems, I mean, what you're saying is the idea of like if you're just not worried about it, it actually takes so much weight off your shoulders. It, does. And it gives you time to actually work. Just develop your ideas. Just do it, you know. And if they're well received, then you're fortunate. Yeah. And if they're not, well, it can't be helped. Yeah. You just pursued the best idea you had at the time. And and everybody everybody has uh, flops or things that were uh, not received. Mm-hmm. And and uh, probably every successful author or musician has a lot of uninteresting work for, for every piece that ended up being a hit. Yeah. And a lot of times you're just remembered for your really good stuff. I, you know, as, that's what it not seems. Not a lot of your bad stuff. That's what it seems. Yeah. History is very forgiving. Sometimes. Well, in, that, <laughs> in that way, it, it, in spite of the, uh, the human mind's negative bias, which I think everyone's pretty well acquainted with. And it, there's reasons to uh, remember the things that are threatening uh, for survival mm-hmm. reasons throughout yeah. evolution. But uh, interestingly, it is really different in art that uh, uh, we remember artists for their best pieces. And, and, uh, and an artist whose work was consistently good, we mostly remember the very best of the best pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, Leonardo was consistently fantastic mm-hmm. yet personally i really do think la Conda was was uh, uh, it's massively popular yet it deserves that popularity because yeah. it is a singular work and it changed yeah. it changed art <laughs> it changed art history i've often thought stood in front of it and thought like even there's a reason that there's this crowd there, and I mean, it's it's gotten ridiculous with the velvet rope and the, and the people holding their iPads up, taking mm-hmm. photographs, and they can't even see it. But mm-hmm. it is it it is a singular and incredible like it. It feels like you have one of the greatest geniuses who has ever walked this planet, mm-hmm. focusing on every hair of every brush stroke mm-hmm. he put on that canvas and trying to make it perfect. And, and, and he did. Yeah. And he put about, what, 15 years into it or yeah. so? He said, carry it around with him or something. <laughs> Never did give it to the uh, patron who yeah. paid for it. <laughs> yeah. That's the way to go. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way, you know, us artists can get away with shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that excuse it? used yeah. to used to work better than it does. Yeah, maybe back then. I think he re- he may have refunded the patron or something. I'm not really <laughs> sure, but um, you know who I am. You know, without his accomplishment, though, seventy five, eighty years later, Caravaggio couldn't have done what he did, mm. and it's all built on preceding accomplishments. Yeah. Mm. What are what are your biggest aesthetic influences i mean i'm sure they change uh, over they do time, change are there any like stalwarts well, that i kind of i really do love renaissance painting probably the most italian and northern both and all throughout italian and then uh, just and mannerist painting too uh, pontormo and mm-hmm. uh, Michel- late michelangelo messed up as it is I mean, the anatomical errors are just head scratchers. Yet they're still wonderful because it's, some flaws are are uh, are uh, compelling to us and meaningful and beautiful, and contradictory as it is. And um, um, 
Oh, parts of uh, Andrea del Sarto and and uh, this late mannerist, and then but but by Baroque, with with the notable exception of Caravaggio, Baroque just doesn't hold me very much. Mm. It it just it just kind of got bigger and messier, and uh, uh, just that's just my two cents. And and there's uh, that opinion may change tomorrow, but that's the that has kind of held me for a while. And, uh, and then it devolved into Rococo, yeah, which got worse. Okay. And and then uh, which was, I can't you know kind of art history's one of art history's bad periods. And there's good and bad periods throughout history. Twentieth century is one of the bad periods. That's yeah. all. And I, I think with worthwhile experiments, and you can understand why people did get fed up with uh, with things that were too obvious. And, people, and wanted to be challenged. But unfortunately, maybe it made way for a lot of deception, too. Bad stuff, too. But it makes sense when you're, you were actually mentioning that earlier about the when you would go to the late 19th century salons and it was like the obvious beauty. But yet we were talking about how important beauty was, is, was, is. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you're like, well, you can almost see why they were like these, you were saying these intelligent people who wanted to be maybe a little bit more challenged mm-hmm. and they're like yeah that's obviously beautiful you know tell me something else or something like that and maybe it then eventually devolved de-skilled that's another word that a lot of people oh, use, especially Doesn't nowadays. that make you sick de-skilling i hate i mean the fact that that's even a word today and it's actually more prevalent <laughs> well maybe not than a handful of years ago but it's still something that's used in Art, not as a us describing something bad. People are like, they like put it up there, like, oh, the de-skilling of blah blah blah. And I'm like, ah, how can you even use that word and not be embarrassed? <laughs> de-skilling, self-taught. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine if your dentist went to school for de-skilling? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a, yeah. Would you want your doctor or mechanic de-skilled? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't so. want my plane wanna, mechanic to be de-skilled. You want to be as skilled as possible. As possible. Uh, and so, why would artwork be different? Yeah. Do you want to go to a, a, a musical concert where the art has no skill whatsoever? <laughs> or a basketball game? <laughs> they're terrible. Like you're going to pay t- buy tickets to a basketball game by a bunch of de-skilled athletes? Yeah, probably not. You want to watch people who've practiced assiduously all their lives and paid a painful price the for their abilities. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's really something. It's a contribution. So what is your... Um, your opinions on the importance of beauty nowadays in 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 your art or you know art in general uh, well uh, for me it's the ultimate priority hmm. beauty and therein lies the rub where uh, everyone defines beauty a little a differently little different, yeah. and that's all right because there's lots of artists and lots of viewers Mm-hmm. So and there should be just a little different definition. You can't define your standards of beauty by anyone else's, or you're led astray. Although I think there's a lot to admire about Lucian Freud and his persistence in painting from the model every day, mm-hmm. all his life, and uh, and uh, he he uh, wasn't seduced by obviousness. But on the other hand, there's a certain anti-aesthetic quality to it. And um, it's kind of a purposeful um, ugliness, you could say, mm-hmm. uh, to me. 
Uh, and I get uh, a lot of artists don't agree on this, but and uh, and then I, um, I I stumbled upon an art school where everyone was painting Lucian Freud's, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where you can be led astray by other people's conception of beauty. I think Freud was completely honest about his conception of beauty. That's what was beautiful to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, be my guess. I don't think he was staging it for popularity or for contrariness or anything else. It was his true self, and the same is true with Francis Bacon. I think they're honest artists, and they they weren't trying to just be sensational. Uh, um, but each has his, has their own own conception of beauty, and and to model yourself after them, well, it's not your sensibility. Oh. It's not you. Then you're and, looking at. Then you're just being influenced by a look of something, and not necessarily be, understanding exactly. where it's coming from. You should be influenced by life mm -hmm. more than by art. You should absorb everything there is to know about art, and then internalize it, and then forget it, mm. and just be, uh, 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 and just kind of go on your instinct. And and you may be walking down the street, and something strikes you as beautiful, and it moves you. It's unexpected, and and uh, you have this compulsion. Ah, I want to paint that. So you just paint it, and not think about the consequences. And and perhaps later you'll think, oh boy, I was I was stupid to think, or or you might think that it might end up being the best thing you ever did, and but you don't really know at the time, and and you have, it just if you feel, you know, compelled to it, you should just do it. So when, for example, some of your portraits here at the show aren't the, what would normally be, oh, this is the model I want to paint, you know, you're getting such a variety of people to paint. Is there anything, like, what do you look for in a model? Because it, you know, some of it, so much of it isn't like, oh, I wouldn't think that you can make a beautiful portrait <laughs> of this person, and yet you... Did like this compelling, beautiful portrait of some somebody who might be, you know, let's say down on their luck or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, actually, I don't uh, appreciate the compliment in, in that. I don't. I don't really know what's next, and, and practically anyone walking down the street, as uh, Robert Henry said, could be the. Uh, uh, potential subject for a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. They can they can be conventionally beautiful. I wouldn't discriminate them against against them for that. Or um, and we kind of have an understanding what conventional beauty sure. means. Um, we're 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 inundated with there, magazines and what you're but, supposed to. But be. there's a natural consensus on it too yeah. that uh, it's experiments with uh, like a scientific like symmetry. Yeah, and, yeah. And there is actually, uh, and uh, well, that's th th there's a really well written book with a terrible title called um, "Survival of the Prettiest." Uh, but it's it, 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 some editor must have picked that to help the book sell or sell, something. Yeah. But but the 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 content is very well researched by an anthropologists who spent a lifetime learning it. And uh, one of the many things discussed in it is um, experiments with say uh, with young children who are much too young to have had their 
concept of beauty affected by anything else. They're just instinctively gravitating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's say to say to five. There's five faces to pick from, and um, uh, and, and they're controlled. They're they're all they're photographed. Um, all with the same light, their hair pulled back with a black background to control variables and, 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 and keep it as consistent as possible. Mm-hmm. And the, the young children will, will gravitate and stare longest, this pre-linguistic kind of utterances and uh, behaviors. So like and, the aesthetically more beautiful looking. And they'll gravitate toward the ones that the adults also think are more like. But, and it's, it's not... Um, they're, they're, they have no preconceived reason to do so. It's just a natural impulse, and it's, and it has to do with um, a, a, a pithy sentence in that book, whose title I just gave you was uh, the author said uh, that um, throughout evolution, kind of builds up to it, and uh, evolutionary psychology, um, a biological advantage became our aesthetic preference mm-hmm. without really knowing why. We don't, we don't consciously know why, but you don't, have to, you don't have to teach a kid to be afraid of spiders. It's a natural reaction. We're just wired that way. We're, we are wired because uh, 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 most spiders are harmless. Yeah. One out of a thousand might be harmful. Since we can't, dis- we don't have enough knowledge to discriminate which ones are harmful. We just have to categorically be scared of them and say, avoid all yeah. of them. Yeah, I run, and it, run for the hills. <laughs> and it's it's a, and snakes and things like that, yeah. which are natural. Because because if you mistake it, see, there's no costs in uh, 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 erring on the, side the cautious side. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But uh, uh, there's a big cost on uh, erring on the side of danger. Yeah. And uh, you, you could be wrong, and that snake could be completely poisonous. And, and you're done. Yeah, well, the people yeah. who weren't scared yeah. of snakes got poisoned and died, and that's, the people who had the That's DNA natural selection. Was, right. yeah. that's, that is natural selection. <laughs> uh, they didn't live long enough to reproduce. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to look uh, for the beautiful... <laughs> You know the beautiful subject that they wanted to procreate with. <laughs> over forty thousand years, they, that line didn't survive. That's that's exactly how it works. <laughs> Random mutation, and selective retention. That would be Charles Darwin's definition of, of natural selection. <laughs> and how does that fit into your choice of subject? I, I, intuitively, uh, it, it's an inherited behavior mm-hmm. that I have, and you have, and everyone has, and and it's why that I think those kind of surveys of who grab babies, adults gravitate towards certain faces mm-hmm. yeah. more than others. Yeah. You're just attracted to them doesn't mean you would judge anyone or me. It's just a, a natural instinct that we we have a certain consensus about beauty, and it's it it's, it could be traced to uh, natural s- selection. But your your portraits run a real range. I mean, I think there are some who uh, would fit that the definition of you know the the children would pick out, and then there are other subjects who not, would definitely not yeah. be the that's, first one that the children. They're more like the spiders. That's right. That's true. And uh, because as we get older, we have uh, you know kind of a broader range of discernment, and we kind of like. Some ugly beauty too, mm-hmm. and, and and flawed beauty, and and uh, it's uh, 
maybe I see myself in that flawed beauty more. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, but you know, you don't hide imperfections either. You're you almost not, you don't overdo them either. There which, just seems to be more of a an honesty, like an mm-hmm. objectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Appreciate that. Well, a role model would be Thomas Eakins, mm-hmm. for example. I think he neither exaggerated nor downplayed um, imperfections and things like that. Um, There's a portrait of his wife at the Metropolitan that I can't imagine how he got away with. <laughs> she wasn't pissed at him? Yeah. <laughs> Is it on exhibit in the 19th century? I think it's normally there. It's, it's her sitting kind of slumped in a chair. In a chair looking and, uh, at you. And there's all. a dog really beautifully painted dog yeah. and she just has like enormous bags under her eyes and just mm. she looks i think it's if i remember because i like that but is, is the light coming from above so she's getting raccoon eyes I think a little so, bit yeah yeah, yeah. it's just <laughs> one of those things. occasionally i look at like some of those ang portraits and just wonder how he got away with that you know it's a commission <laughs> and he makes some you know things on their face and the hair looks like a poodle and just thinking, well i have a my own theory about Aang, um, which may not be my own, may not be original. At all. Uh, um, but once you say it on mic, it's yours. <laughs> you then own it. It seems I think he was a little bit afraid of women, because uh, the, the male portraits are completely honest. Yeah, they're pretty. The men definite, tells it like it is. Yeah. The women look don't look real at all. The clothing is beautiful. They look a little more alien-like. They do, kind of airbrushed before there was such a thing. Yeah, Uh, I never noticed, but you're totally... I'm like going through the Rolodex of drawings in my head of Aang, and I'm like, wait, he's right. Hmm. All of them are Mm round-faced and kind of alien-y, and the the men are I almost thought that was just the aesthetic then. Maybe. But it never never occurred to me. It's his theory. Some of which, like the Comtesse at the Frick now, I think that's probably a pretty honest depiction. Yeah. Uh, but others, you know, a portrait commission, and now that's a whole other minefield. <laughs> but, you know, you have, you're, you know, somebody's paying you, and uh, you're beholden. Do you do portrait commissions? You know, I haven't for a long, long time. It's not that I never would, but it, and I have a, I know some, extremely talented portrait painters and, and uh, have a lot of respect for it and always had a, will always have a lot of respect for Sargent and other, mm-hmm. others who did, ex, uh, you know, portrait commissions all their lives. Um, uh, but I think it, it really adds a burden to the artist and it makes it a lot harder. Um, and it's hard enough as it is. You almost have to paint the best version of this person because you well, need to... And that's fair and square. Sure. Because a, a best version is still a real version. Yeah. I don't mind that at all. And hey, after all, if you're doing a self-portrait, what else are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be that self-deprecating. Yeah. I don't know. You go, my self-portraits go through phases. <laughs> and you know, halfway through it, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> Just because you're but sick it, of looking it, at it. The yourself. self-loathing sets yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. Uh, I've, I've noticed on... Um, there's a series of portraits. It seems like you're still doing it where you're putting in this very simple, you know, yellow, very light cream colored yellow background. And I know you, there, it's not just. And very flat. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it's, it's not just for, you know, the hell of it that you're actually, there's a point. Like you were talking about like the, the light. Mm-hmm. There's a, a it, and 
kind of repeating the earlier discussion, sure. but uh, uh, there's, a, there's a number of reasons. Uh, but mainly is that it makes the absolute world's simplest composition. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it uh, is, becomes this kind of reductive concentration on the subject with no distraction. And I do like it for that. And it was entirely against everything I ever taught when I was teaching, which was to, that everything everywhere needs to be changing. Yeah. I threw that out the window. And, uh, and to my amazement, it could still work. Now, there's a painting by uh, Roger Vanderweyden at the, at the Metropolitan that does the same thing. It's the painting of Francesco d'Este, if you know that work. At that piece, I, a beautiful painting. It's with a white background. It it's with an unmodulated uh, male portrait with an unmodulated uh, white background. So, gonna... and that was painted in what fourteen yeah, sixty seventy. So, I can't say I did the first one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and another interesting influence on it is commercial photography. That, like, uh, you see for. Uh, Time and Newsweek and so forth. They do portraits with these white backgrounds, mm-hmm. and and it and I I'd looked at those for a long time, for years, and I think that's impossible, uh, because uh, but it was only impossible because it was contrary to my preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. And I'm looking at Edward right now with this. Uh, you can't see it, but there's this bright white background behind you that makes you a silhouette, and it makes it a really powerful. Um, subject mm-hmm. and and i i do like it, it. almost becomes like sort of isolates it's it. like iconic it yeah. isolates it and um you know those uh, those most powerful works say by Zerberon, yeah that are just isolated it's a it's a concentrated emphasis on on the one subject and they're really more powerful like the lamb or saint francis uh, and uh, the simplest ones are the most concentrated and really the most compelling, maybe to our contemporary sensibilities, or maybe it would stay that way for centuries, but they're, they're uh, the, the strongest of the works uh, for me and probably for a lot of people. You were mentioning teaching, too, and um, do you teach anymore? Well, did you teach? I or? just I help out at friends who come to me is the main thing. It's hard to make time for it. <laughs> and, um, but no, I don't have any scheduled classes. I'm, d- I'm doing one more class in January for uh, Studio in Kalmanati and Philadelphia. Oh, you're doing, you're doing uh, like a, uh, a workshop? A, a, a weekend workshop. Mm. Wow. And then when I, is that? That will be January 22nd or so, 21st, I think. That would be pretty cool. Was there a time um, when you were teaching more regularly? Yeah, I, uh, yes. I, I, I taught at the local community college in Glenwood Springs for maybe 20 years. Oh, wow. And I, I really did enjoy it. And we had models all the, you know, every week. Um, for a while, it was two nights a week and eventually down to one night a week. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, I used that. And uh, thankfully, I only had maybe like four or five students. So you got to paint. Got to do my own. That's great. And I did charcoal drawing um, for almost that whole time and uh, helped really develop my uh, you know use of line and study and practice and practice and practice and it, it fed my still life work and it made me be more accurate or it made or it helped me distort knowledgeably teaching is the best way to learn 
It really is. <laughs> and because, you know, it's just about rep- learning is repetition. Yeah. And uh, teaching you keep repeating and emphasizing things that you need to... You single out the things that you really need to work on yourself. Yeah. Usually when you're teaching. And I, when I'm teaching, I talk about squinting. Oh, yeah. The simplest thing... But I need to be reminded of it still. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> just on that white wall behind the model, just right, squint. <laughs> well, I'll even when I'm teaching, I'll, I'm telling somebody to fix something, and in the back of my head, I'm saying, like, I do that too. <laughs> note, note to self, yeah. don't do this. Well, <laughs> back to the studio, fix. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because that's exactly what I did. And, and I'm that, fixing somebody else's version. In, in that way, it's really productive. Yeah. Uh, uh, for an artist to teach. Is there also, do you get a sense of community? I mean, are, are some mm-hmm. of the students, have they kind of been people who you've kind of have remained in your life and have yeah, been part of Yeah, your- and have, have gone on to, you know, really become professional artists and mm-hmm. do well, and that's highly rewarding. Yeah, tremendously. I find also just here in New York, I mean, they're, we've got, uh, Tony and I teach at the Grand Central Atelier, and uh, having the the communicate like just having that community around us uh, I don't know for me that's that's incredible about to see other people running in different directions that I never occurred to me and and it's inspiring mm-hmm. and it's always reinvigorating to go in there and see uh, just engage with that community I, I, I just find that incredibly important just for my I, it's so easy to be locked in your studio and kind of just go a little bit insane and getting out and uh, having some contact with other human beings is <laughs> valuable, particularly human beings who share the same passion that you have for this. And this school surely exposes you to things that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten to see. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's excellent. Do you get out, and I know we were talking because some of the paintings you have downstairs are plein air paintings. Um, how often are you out it's doing It's really episodic. Like um, last year, I painted all summer long outside. And here I had a brand new studio and didn't even use it. <laughs> painted outside. and it's, uh, Only other periods in my life where I've painted outside so much is when I didn't have a studio. <laughs> so it's about the only way you could work. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, and then this summer I didn't at, hardly at all. Maybe a couple of times because I was working so much on this exhibition. But now that that's passed for a while, I'm going to be painting outside again. You're going to go out there and just kind of... For a while. I think it energizes your studio painting and it gives you... uh, You know, it it puts a lot of pressure on you to make choices quickly Mm -hmm. when you're out on location. And that can be helpful for studio work when you have all the time in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I was noticing in your... The plein airs that you have, uh, again, kind of looking at the texture and, and feeling like there's some improvisation going on with you know you just kind of finding the right tool to make the right mark and and really kind of almost like researching mark making in you know this kind of uh laboratory this kind of outdoor laboratory and and it seems like maybe that is the kind of thing that you bring back to the studio and informs uh your decision making later it really is it really is. And, well, uh, last year when I, I, I was kind of like taking myself to the woodshed because feeling like I was complacent or just too repetitive or all this kind of thing. I needed to, you know, kind of 
push myself. And uh, yet I had no idea exactly how that would manifest when I got back in the studio. And still don't. And it, it comes back in, in ways that I can just sort of detect that are subtle. It's not really a, that obvious, but uh, it just comes in, you know, like maybe a skill I learned out there or uh, um, maybe a, a shortcut which it, there need to be shortcuts. For a, a, a shortcut being uh, a brushstroke that suggests something rather than delineates, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. possibly. And, and you learn to use that to your advantage, and then you learn to use textures in a studio painting. That it, it almost seems when you go out plain air painting, it also gives you an excuse to experiment and do all those things to figure out shortcuts. I know... I know when I'm in my studio, I feel almost, um, I don't know, regulated to, well, you can't do that because it's, you know, you're in the studio and you shouldn't be experimenting. Not that I say this to myself, mm -hmm. but it, it's like you're there and you're, it's like work time and you got to like produce. Mm -hmm. When you're outside plein air painting, it's almost like an excuse to be like, I'm out experimenting. If it doesn't work, no big deal. It's just a plain air painting. It's like a sketch. That's really true for several reasons, because you don't have that much time invested yeah. compared to your studio pieces. Yeah. It's almost like when I get a brand new, beautiful sketchbook, and I'm going to fill this thing up with great drawings, and you never draw on it because you too want to be it's too careful. Too perfect. But somebody gives you a ream of, of, of uh, you know, Crummy. paper, paper mm -hmm. and you're like doing your best drawings on those because there isn't that preconception of having to produce something, something precious yeah, or yeah. precious that's really a good point <laughs> you know? i think that's that's how it all works so napkins things like that Stacks of envelopes. Cool. yeah <laughs> yeah that's where i do every like all of my composing for paintings is always on the back of an envelope because i can never find a piece of paper and i never when you need open it. up those sketchbooks <laughs> and you need it right now yeah. Yeah. so the closest people piece of paper is going to do right yeah. <laughs> i need to get out more and play an airplane i know this summer when i was visiting ted out and um out in, at the beach when you were out there and he was just out every day playing air painting i was just like i didn't bring my paints because i was with my daughter and i was like ah oh, that's just that's it almost not not that it is but i'm like that's real painting he's out there there's no setting up anything in the sense of you know composing you're just there do it you know, and there was something so. It, it was so a month and a half of like freeing, absolute you know? perf like my dream. <laughs> yeah, a month true. and a half. Yeah. It's a pretty good long time to be out there doing yeah. it. Yeah, really is. It's good, and you're out there with no. All you want to do is a good job right now, and you don't care about how it's if it's relevant to today's tastes or yeah, aesthetics yeah. or anything. You just how people are gonna, you know look at it as far as its importance and the the idea of art history it's like nah i just want to Makes, do a good job right now and that's not embarrass it. myself that's it and that in itself can be the unintended uh, effect on your studio work mm. well you're standing in front of something that's <laughs> just so inspiring and you you just you you want you want to capture something of that you know and and Hopefully, if you if you do and you figure out a way to do it, you know maybe it translates to something in the studio or it doesn't. But it's yeah, it, it doesn't feel like there's any like bad consequences to falling down in in those kinds of scenarios, which is fun and it's liberating. It is. Do you keep any like a log of ideas or anything, or is it a lot of it just I'm just going to figure it out on the spot? It'd be a real good idea 
idea <laughs> to keep a log of ideas, yeah. but I never seemed to do it. Once in a while, I've kind of written them out, yeah. descriptions that would remind me what to do. I wish I would do it. Do you? I try to, and then I'm always, oh, or I'll say I'll remember it later, and then I forget. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll write it down on scraps, scraps of paper, and then I'll lose them. And sometimes, a lot of times I write them down now with like your iPhone, I'll put it in a list. My like notes app is full of ideas, yeah, but same. It, it's not the, like the backs of the envelopes that I've done the drawings on are much more valuable and those yeah, I always lose. Yeah, it would be like a description of something and sometimes I read it back and I'm like, well, what was I thinking about <laughs> or that's really stupid. But at the time, that's when you write okay. it down, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's I'd rather erase it or say, "Oh, but that you was need the dumb. visual cues." Because most of our ideas probably aren't that good. No, but like that's why we need percentage. to capture all of them, just in case there is a good one in there. Well, what ends up happening is because there were times in the past when I had a really bad idea, but it influenced a better idea. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a step. It was like a springboard yeah. to yeah. something that was way better because this was stupid. But a word reminded me of something else. I was like, "Well, that's dumb, but that this is better." That's exactly right, and that's that's what it's it, so. It's a good practice for that. Yeah, I wish I was better at it. I wish I was. You know, one last thing. Looking at your paintings, that I've noticed, uh, and I wonder how deliberate it is. Is uh, it feels like there's a breadcrumb trail in every painting, uh, showing your process. There's, uh, you know, a, a brush hair here. There's, you know, like a little bit of a mark from the palette knife there. The corner of the canvas the kind of image disintegrates into the panel or the priming yeah you can see some of the underpainting on certain areas but it seems mm -hmm. like you're deliberately leaving a breadcrumb trail yeah it's deliberate because i've got control of those things yeah um it it does kind of reveal the process and it also but mostly i like how it is kind of appearing and disintegrating and reforming and i'm far from the first person to do that in yeah. fact i think you see that in that that exhibition of Bouveret that we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, but the naturalists. Yeah. How do you pronounce? I don't. Bouveret. I'm pretty I'm sure, sure we're all pronouncing it I know it all wrong. the French right now. Like ah, <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. shutting this off. My Agnan ears hurt. Bouveret. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any background in French either. <laughs> Danyon, D-A-T-N-O-N dash. Yeah. Bouveret. Yeah. <laughs> but just and, and that's one of. Uh, uh, one b very good example of uh, naturalist painting that we're talking about, and and, uh, and there's there's others, Jules Breton, yeah, yeah, uh, there, and they did a lot of what we're talking about, really suggesting with texture and mm -hmm. and using texture as part of the illusion, which is really good. It's it's funny because they were doing they were playing with texture and that on top, well. Um, contrasting with like ultra tight painting too, so they kind of had. Their, the ability to go super, super tight and super loose at the same time. I, you were even mentioning, I completely agree with you, that I think there, unfortunately, came around at a bad period of time. <laughs> Otherwise, I think they would have been like a big celebrated group of artists. Yeah. I agree with you. I thought they were, I think that some of the artists in that, you know, what would be considered naturalists were just unbelievable but they're kind of forgotten mm -hmm. and their whole movement was forgotten because it just came at a bad time mm -hmm. overshadowed by uh, french impressionism, impressionism really. That really and, and there was really great work being done in england germany italy but i wonder i mean i wonder what all the factors were in that you know that drew people to impressionism and away from naturalism i've thought a lot about that and i i, I you know 
I think there's more to it, and I, I don't know exactly what the more it's a, is. It's a research subject, really, yeah. and there's probably there's you probably could find a path of uh, a sequence of events that kind of led taste that direction. Yeah. It, uh, part you know there could be a variety of things. So partly those pictures are generally pretty and soothing, and which is absolutely nothing wrong with that. So you think maybe people, I mean who are going into the impressionism were like, oh, that's just more of the same, you know, meaning looking at the naturalist saying, oh, that's just more of the same stuff. It's like soothing and pretty and well done. Peasant girls by the bank. Yeah. Of the river. I I don't know. Uh, You know, uh, there's historically there's, and there always will be uh, uh, a, uh, a thirst for novelty and, and uh, impressionism really did throw a change. Mm-hmm. At what had been expected, and and uh, sometimes I think, well, I think that it was a natural evolution at the time. But I think later, artists, you know, like Duchamp, Andy Warhol, it's, artists would kind of uh, anticipate audience expectations mm-hmm. and then confound them mm. deliberately to throw them off and. <laughs> With the with two possible outcomes, one is it'd be completely ignored, or the other is that it revolutionized the direction of art at the time, which both of those artists did. And I think um, Duchamp, who was a talented artist, actually, um, and I really do like those futurist kind of cubist pieces, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but uh, he got a lot more attention by doing publicity stunts, and that that became his art and uh, you know what that's easy and it's something for nothing and it appealed to artists ever since I think it's amazing how much that has gotten into the modern zeitgeist now it really has it's like being your you know the whole idea of being famous for nothing and that's right you know being famous for being stupid and stuff like that it's like what the you can kind of go back to Duchamp and see where it kind of came from. Well, although I, that's not true, because when you go back in time and you read articles or you know from wherever, there there's examples of that. It's just that it's so blown up now. Yeah, that's right. Times. That's right. And I'm I'm sure publicity stunts have been a part of human behavior ever that's since ever. <laughs> yeah. language was in, invented. <laughs> Language is actually a publicity stunt that went the right way. There was that one. That was smart. <laughs> that one worked out for us, for humanity. It did. It's a beautiful show, I think. Thank yeah, you. Really, congratulations. Really yeah. appreciate you guys coming and, to it. And, and to see so many of your pieces, obviously, in one you. place is, is a treat for, Thanks. I think, anybody who cares about good art. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us, I too. I know. And thank really you for your interest and for doing this project. And I want to listen to... The, uh, a lot of your previous podcasts. Please. Yeah, please. And, and don't judge. And how <laughs> many, and <laughs> and it's a really fantastic project you guys are doing. And, you know, it's kind of needed for um, sympathizers of our type of artwork. Yeah. yeah. We need outlets, I think, we to do. have our voices heard. I think yeah. that there just there aren't enough uh, places where people can hear what you have to say about your work which i think a lot of people really will want to hear and 
And also it's, not it's, in a way that it's like a soundbite or it's like the answer to well, that's somebody's the thing about podcasts. question. Yeah. It's, it's like, cause it's never that simple. No. It's the idea that and we can you interrupt can... each other. And... Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but idea... No, I was interrupting you. I was just, <laughs> but the idea that you can, <laughs> we always of... get criticized for interrupting, <laughs> <laughs> but we would, um, you know, you can kind of just explain it and it doesn't have to be edited in the way that, so it can fit a certain amount of words on that's nice yeah it's so not it's like nice. sound bites it's not an interview it's just a conversation yeah. and it goes wherever it goes which is I, I like the organic kind of that's the podcasting medium which uh i think tony and i were both sort of drawn to these kind of organic conversations that are almost the antithesis of you know people reciting talking points in interviews which is basically all you see in interviews mm-hmm. are those your studio crocs they're my whole life Crocs. <laughs> I got dress. Years ago, these are my I dress Crocs, Crocs for the studio, and it changed everything. Because really? standing up, my knees and uh, were starting to hurt. And at the end of the day, in my Crocs, it feels great. I know they're so comfortable. My wife won't let me leave the house, and no, she won't even let me leave the studio. Was <laughs> <laughs> like, you leave the Crocs? If I start coming down the stairs, she's like, "No, nope, back, back up, back up." <laughs> well, for people who care about beauty, that is a bit of a contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's I a think great place to end it. everybody should come see uh, Daniel Sprick's work. I'm, I'm a, been a fan of yours for a long time. So Thank it's you. Been yeah, a me real too. Pleasure. It was Thank great you. to finally meet you. Yeah. Thank you. And likewise, <laughs> likewise, I've followed both your works for a long time with great interest and admiration. Oh, so, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate yeah. that. That's from, coming from you. That means a lot. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, it's. Uh, um, and is so there? Do you have on. a site, by the way? Do you have a website or anything? I do. Uh, 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 DanielSprick.com. And, and there's a Gerald Peters website that has its new works on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, all of us do a Google search, and you get of course. M- <laughs> more than you ever want to see. <laughs> and you can't even control that. You're like, I really Much of like which you're not, not even responsive. It's like other people's work. It is. It so is. That's no, okay. Also, thank you to Gerald Peters for uh, letting us record in the gallery. Yeah. It's kind of a, a beautiful little space and very generous of him. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll see each other soon, and uh, and leave your comments in the um, in the comments section Please, on yeah. iTunes. It helps this a lot. we didn't start out. This was suggested donation podcast. I'm Edward Minoff, and I'm Tony Serenai, and we're we here with Daniel Sprick, and it was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers, thank you guys.